We're looking at Revelation chapter 5. Um, let me pray for us as we start. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that at Christmas time we can remember Jesus coming to the earth, um, that we can remember that this is the time where you became one of us. And we pray now, Lord, that as we look at your word, that you would speak to us and you would show us that more clearly, and that you would show us the wonder of Jesus so that this Christmas we can celebrate him. Um, And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to what you have to teach us today and help us to understand. Amen. So we're going to be looking at uh, Revelation chapter 5. So let me read uh, from verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one of them had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood... You purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honour and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said Amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. If you were to choose one image to explain why we celebrate Christmas, what would it be? If you were to choose an image to explain why we celebrate Christmas, what would it be? Perhaps it would be something like this. A festive scene, Christmas trees, presents, maybe lots of food going around, friends and family sitting around a fire. You say, this is why we celebrate Christmas. It's a chance to get together and celebrate together with other people. Or maybe you'd say, well, that's more kind of how we celebrate Christmas, but why we celebrate is more like this, an image of the nativity (laughs) when it arrives. So we're imagining it, right? Oh, not that one. That's the next one. Um, Perhaps the image that you would choose would be an image of the manger. We've been talking today so far, haven't we, about Christmas being the time that God comes to earth. 
And so you'd say the reason why we celebrate is because Jesus was born. That's why we celebrate. And then maybe you'd say, well, it's not just Jesus' birthday. We're not just celebrating Jesus' birthday 2,000 years later. We celebrate Christmas because of what Jesus went on to do. So maybe you would choose an image like this. See, there are many images that we might use to celebrate Christmas, to explain why we celebrate Christmas. And I don't think there is one particular right answer to which image explains why we celebrate Christmas. There are probably wrong ones. But I wonder how many of us in this room, before we read this passage today, would have chosen the image of a scroll and a lamb to explain why we celebrate Christmas. How many of us would have chosen the image of a scroll being torn open by a lamb who was bleeding as the reason, as an explanation for why we celebrate Christmas? Because that's the image that we've just seen. As we're looking in this book of Revelation, this is a vision that's been given to someone called John, and it is a series of images that explain all sorts of things about the Christian faith to us as we read it. And here we see the image of a scroll and a lamb. And do you see, this is an image that leads to celebration. I wonder if you saw the journey that John went on as he, as he told it to us. In verse 4, did you see where he started? I wept, and I wept. We've got a man who is despairing and crying at the beginning. And then as the image goes on and the other side, verse 9, they sang a new song. You see, this is an image that turns tears into songs. This is an image that is a cause for celebration. This explains why we celebrate. And so my prayer for us today, as we read this, and as we look in more detail as to what this image is telling us, my prayer for us today is that we too would be turning in celebration this Christmas time as we look to Jesus. We would be joining with the angels and the creatures as they sing these songs in the second half of this vision. So we're thinking today about this image as to why we celebrate Christmas. So let's picture the scene. I'm going to set the scene first of all in, in chapter 4. So in the chapter immediately before the one we've just read, John enters the throne room of heaven. That is, he enters the place where God is sitting on the throne. So this sets the scene, and I'm going to read um, verses 2 to 6. And I really want you to imagine what it looks like. Okay? If you need to shut your eyes and listen as, I, as we read it, do that. Try and picture the scene. Right, so at once, starting from verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit and there before me was a throne. A throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So this is the context. The throne room. There's someone sitting there with the appearance of dazzling jewels. Jasper and ruby. And there's a rainbow of emerald shining around him. It's a dazzling scene and it's an awesome sight as peals of lightning and thunder echo around the throne room. This is the context. And then just as the director in a film, when they're spanning around a large shot, might zoom in on the thing they want us to take, pay special attention to. In chapter 5, verse 1, John goes from this awesome and epic scene 
into the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So we're in the throne room and then we're looking at his right hand. And in the right hand sat a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So as we try to understand this, as we try to understand this um, image, the first thing that we see is the sealed scroll. The first thing that we see is the sealed scroll. Now, I'm not sure that we know exactly what is written in this scroll. Um, if you Google it, if you read different theologians, people will tell you different things. Um, and I think, frankly, um, what the exact writing that's in it isn't the important thing here, otherwise we'd be told exactly what it says. But we do see a few key details, don't we? And as we, as we look at the image, we can see things that help us understand. So first of all, we see where it is. It is in the right hand of God. And secondly, we see that it is sealed with seven seals. And the fact that it's in the right hand of God is hugely important. See, God's right hand is his main tool. It's what he uses to act in this earth. Throughout the Bible, many, many, many times, we see God's right hand as, as his tool, as the way, that he, the way that he acts in this earth. I don't know how many times um, I found a website called 58 Verses with God's right hand in it, started reading some of them and then found more references to God's right hand. And there are, many, there are many different things. Some of the things he does, he provides refuge, he exalts people, he upholds people, he destroys his enemies, he cuts off his people, he cuts off his enemies, he shatters his enemies, he provides comfort, he provides righteousness, he gains victory, he provides seat, a seat for the Messiah. He does all of these things with his right hand. So as we see this, as we see the scroll sitting in his right hand, we know that this scroll contains something of God's intention of how he's going to act. And I think we can summarise all of those things into two phrases. Judgment and salvation. You see, the right hand of God is the hand that judges. And the right hand of God is the hand that saves. The hand that provides refuge. Exodus 15 verse 6 says, Your right hand, Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand shatters the enemy. See, the right hand of God is enemy-shatteringly powerful. Psalm 20, verse 6 says, Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. The right hand gives power and victory to God's people. It is a place where God's enemies tremble and his people can take refuge. And so although we don't know the words of this scroll, as John focuses in on it, he is showing us that in this, in this scroll there is a message of judgment and salvation. A plan, if you like, a script penned by the author of the universe. The divine narrative of all eternity as God writes his plan and makes his will known to build up a kingdom for himself. That's the scroll that we see. And yet, it is sealed. Sealed with seven seals. The number seven in the book of Revelation is the number of completion, the number of perfection. So as we see these seven seals on the scroll, we see that it is totally inaccessible, totally unattainable, totally and perfectly sealed. It is so sealed that the angel is crying out, who is worthy to break these seals and open the scroll at the end of verse 2? Do you notice who that was that cried out? An angel, a mighty angel. Now that's pretty significant because if there's anybody who you want to open a scroll that's sitting in the hand of God and deliver a message, 
is probably an angel, right? They're the professionals. They're the people that do this in the Bible. Every time there is a message in the, throughout the Bible that's delivered from God to his people, or often it's delivered via an angel. See, if you want a message delivered, you want it delivered by a pro. So imagine your boiler had broken. Who would you call? Plumber. Right? You call in the pros to do the thing, to fix the task that you need to do. So imagine in this cold winter, your boiler is broken and you walk into the kitchen and there is a mighty plumber standing there saying, who on earth can fix this boiler? <laughs> right? You've got a problem, okay? So here we have a scroll, a message from God, and we've got a mighty angel saying, who on earth, who is worthy to open this scroll? And we know we've got a problem. It is an unopenable scroll. John searches. He searches high and low. He searches on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And no one was found who is worthy to open this scroll, the divine message, the perfect script of salvation and judgment for God's kingdom. And so he weeps. You see that in verse 4? He weeps. You might think this is a bit of an overreaction. Why is John weeping just because this scroll can't be opened? What is it about this scroll that make, drives him to despair? Well, here John is letting us into a bit of a thought experiment. Imagine a world where no one is worthy to execute on God's plan. God's perfect plan for judgment, judgment, for redemption and salvation. Imagine a world where there is a God and yet you have no access to his will because there is no one who can, make you, that can bring you towards him. No one capable, no one willing, no one powerful enough to bring an end to the pain, to destroy all the hard things and the painful things in life. No one who is worthy to raise you up victorious. Imagine a world where all that you see around you is all you can hope for because there is no one worthy to execute God's plan. It's hopeless. It's devastating. And so John weeps and he weeps because he looks at this scroll. He sees God's plan for the world and it cannot be opened. And the tears flow. It's hopeless. But that's not the end. Because we see the sealed scroll and then in the second half of the chapter we see that there is one who is worthy. There is one who is worthy. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The tears clear from John's eyes as the elder tells him, someone has triumphed. There is someone who is able. There is one who is worthy to open the scroll. And this person is a lion. They are a fearsome conqueror. A mighty lion. See, this lion is fearsome, he's powerful, he's an all-conquering beast who will roar with power as he fights the battles of God's people. He is a victorious, conquering lion. But it's not any lion. This lion is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And so he is also the promised king. You see, the one who is worthy is a fearsome conqueror and he is also a promised king. And to help us understand this promise, this promised king, we need to think a little bit about where John's coming from, a little bit about the history of Israel. You see, Israel, God's people, have been crying out for a king for centuries. 
Okay, for, throughout the whole of the Old Testament, we see Israel longing for a ruler, longing for someone to fight their battles on their behalf, longing for someone to raise them victorious and to lead them and to lead them into the promised land. And God has been promising them a king the whole way through. At the end of the, at the, end of the book of Genesis, Jacob, who is the, the father of Israel, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, reads out promises, speaks God's blessing onto each of his sons. And when he's speaking out these blessings, he's got different messages for different ones. Some of them are told they're going to be scattered. Some of them are told they're not going to excel anymore. Some of them are told various different things. And then he speaks to Judah. And he says to Judah in Genesis 49, verse 9, don't worry about turning there, you are a lion's cub. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches down and he lies down. Like a lioness, who dares rouse him? And then he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. You see, the Israelites are, ble- pro- are promised a king of the line of Judah. God promises to Judah that the king, the one with the scepter, that's one of those long poles with the little balls on the top that the king or the queen gets given at coronation. The scepter will always be in the house of Judah. Life doesn't get much easier for the Israelites at that point. So they're promised this king, the line of Judah, and then they get sent out, they get um, taken into slavery, then they get rescued from slavery, then they go into exile, wander the desert for a while, and then there's a period of a few centuries where the judges rule over Israel. So they keep turning away from God and someone will come and they say, no, don't turn away from God. Point them towards God and they promise to follow him and then they turn away again. And this goes on and on and on for about 400 years until eventually they cry out to God. They say, give us a king. We need a king. We need someone to rule and to lead us into the promised land. And so God sent them Saul and then he sent them David. And to David, he said this. He said, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, to Judah, there was a promise that the king would always be in his line. And to David, there was a promise that his house would reign forever. So do you see how as the elder says to John in Revelation chapter 5, this is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, John's heart warms as he thinks this is the promised king, the one who has always been told, we've always been told he's going to come and lead us on. He has come and he has triumphed. Finally, the fearsome conqueror and the promised king. And so John looks. He looks. Let's pause here for a second. What, what might you expect to see? What might, if you were in John's shoes and you're crying because you see this scroll and you see no one can open it, and then you're told the promised king, the fearsome conqueror is here. What might you expect to see? Perhaps some kind of triumphal entry, a chariot with fire, or like a fanfare playing in the background and kind of the brass quartet playing along as this person enters in glory. Perhaps you'd expect to see that. But look at what John sees. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Has there been a mistake? Has the elder got it wrong? He's saying there's a lion here. Now imagine um, you were expecting to see someone and you saw something totally different. The Rugby World Cup happened over the summer. 
and as you know, very, very sad day. South Africa beat England in the final. And the, one of the commentaries on South Africa described this team as an onrushing juggernaut, rumbling on a prodigious display of power and might. That is how the South African rugby team were described. Now imagine if you heard that, you hadn't watched the final, heard about this rumbling juggernaut, and you think, great, I'm a South Africa fan, I want to go and watch them get off the plane. And you see them get off the plane and out steps a few like 11-year-old lanky boys that kind of struggle to make their way down the steps. You'd be sure there's a mistake, wouldn't you? You'd be sure there's a mistake because what you've heard and what you see is so different. John is told that you've seen the lion, the fearsome conqueror and the promised king and yet he sees the lamb who was slain. Is it a mistake? Well, no, it's not. The point here, the point that is being made is that the lion is the lamb. The one who is worthy is the lamb who was slain. And as we, as you read on in the vision, the the lamb proves that he's worthy, doesn't he? He goes on in verse 7, he proves that he is worthy to take the scroll because he went in verse 7 and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. No one in heaven and earth could do this. And then this lamb, this bleeding, weak, Lamb crawls up to the throne and he grabs the scroll and he takes it and he opens it. See, the lamb has proven he is worthy. And so how can it be? Why is this lamb the worthy one? How can it be that the lamb is the one who is actually this lion? We're expecting a lion, we see a lamb. How can it be? Well, verse 9 gives us a clue. The elders and the animals, they bow down before the throne and they start singing this song. They say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and peoples and nations. You see, the clue here is this lamb is worthy because he is slain for everyone. He is slain for everyone. The lamb was worthy to open the scroll Because God's plan, the script for salvation, the script for um, judgment, redemption and salvation, was always for all people. And the problem is, if you are all people, if you are anyone, you can't just walk into God's kingdom. I can't just walk into God's kingdom. You can't just walk into God's kingdom. What we need is we need somebody to make it possible. We need someone who is worthy to make it possible. Because there is a cost to building a kingdom. You see, God promises to be a fair judge. And all of us, no matter which nation we're from or which language we speak, have rejected God. We've walked away from him. We've said, no, I don't, I don't care about your plan. I'm walking over here. And as we do that, as we turn away from God, that creates a barrier between us and God. Right? That creates a barrier and there is a cost to breaking down that barrier. And that cost is death. It's blood. It's death and it's blood. And so as this lamb dies, with his blood, he purchases for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. The one who is worthy to deliver the plan is the one who can win a battle with blood. Not a battle-hardened warrior who shatters the enemy and sheds the blood of the enemy, but a lamb who sheds his own blood for the sake of his enemies. And when the lamb was slain, His blood was shed so that people from all nations and tribes and tongues could be in the kingdom of God. 
And they turn up in their droves, don't they? They turn up in their droves. You see in verse 11, you hear the angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousand. And then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea in verse 13, turning to this lamb and saying, you are worthy, you are worthy of praise, you are worthy of honour and glory and power forever. Because this is the lamb who was slain so that all people could come into the kingdom of God. So what's this got to do with Christmas? Why are we using this as the image that helps us understand why we celebrate Christmas? Well, at Christmas we celebrate the birth of Jesus. We've been talking about, haven't that, have, we've been talking about that today, haven't we? Jesus, God with us. And you see, Jesus was born on Christmas Day, a little baby, weak, trembling, no triumphal entry, no fanfare, but a manger in a stable just outside Bethlehem. And Jesus went on to live the perfect life. He lived a completely sinless life. He never walked away from God. He never hurt his friends and family. He never did anything that was anything other than God's perfect plan. And yet he died. Like a lamb to the slaughter, he went to the cross and he died. And he shed his blood so that God could look at Jesus and all of the punishment, all of the pain and the blood and the death that we deserve, that everyone else deserves, is placed on him and God is satisfied to look at him. And so we celebrate Christmas because Jesus is the lamb who was slain for everyone. We celebrate Christmas because when Jesus came and lived the perfect life, died died on the cross, he did that so that we may be bought, we may be purchased for God and that we may, in verse 10, we may be a kingdom to serve God and reign on the earth. So Jesus is the lamb that was slain for everyone. He is also the promised king. right? Jesus was of the line of David. Jesus was of the line of Judah. He was the boy, the real man born in that line. He was the promised king. He was the one who had always been foretold. And he's a ferocious conqueror, a fearsome conqueror, because death could not contain Jesus. Jesus died. He went, in, he went underground. He was in the grave. And then three days later, he had fought the battle and he won. He beat death. The fearsome conqueror who was promised to Israel, to promise to beat their enemy, beat the enemy of death and sin that all of us have to fight. So Jesus is the promised king. He is the lamb who was slain and he is the fearsome conqueror because he rose again. And when he, as he stands there in glory, having risen, we can look to him and we can trust him and we too can be part of the kingdom that he is pulling together. So why do we celebrate Christmas? Because there is a lamb. There is one who is worthy. The birth of Jesus is the arrival of the one who is victorious, the lion of Judah and the lamb who was slain. He's the one who is worthy to open the scroll and his blood purchased people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. So this Christmas, let's celebrate because we have a lamb who can open the scroll. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus. Lord, we praise you that he is the lion and the lamb. We praise you that he is the fearsome conqueror who will destroy death. We praise you that he is the lamb who was slain so that we can be purchased to be part of God's kingdom. We praise you that he is the promised king that you have promised throughout all of the ages that we can look at and we can know your faithfulness. 
And Lord, we praise you that he has done that for everybody. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.